Abner Maris is a world champion boxer, Olympian, sports commentator, and most importantly, and that's to me too, a dad to two little girls. Beloved by abuelas and hardcore fans alike, Abner is a pro at entertaining the world both in and out of the ring. On Blue Wire's new podcast, On the Hook with Abner Marez, we'll hear from Abner, his family, fellow athletes, and other people who make him the boxer and the man he is. They chat about topics like the state of boxing, Abner's journey from a kid on the streets to boxing champion, and being a husband and near and dear to my heart as a fellow, one of these, a girl dad. Listen to On the Hook with Abner Maris wherever you get your podcasts. Episodes in English out on Tuesdays and episodes in Spanish out on Wednesdays. Welcome back to another episode of the Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Mike Prada. It's someday in mid-October. What day is it today? 14th. Over. The 14th. Yeah. Okay. The 14th. It's uh, three days or two days. Man, I can't keep track of days. After the NBA Finals ended, we took a little bit of a break. We previewed both the NBA and WNBA Finals. Both are now over, obviously. The Los Angeles Lakers are the champions. And to help kind of break down... The legacy implications of the Lakers title, to try to partition credit for who really helped them win, and all their stuff to try to place this team and this unique run in context. We've got a special guest. Ben Epstein is here as usual. Our special guest is Ben Taylor. He is the proprietor of the, I guess, the Thinking Basketball Empire. Is that the best way to put it? You've got a YouTube show, a YouTube channel, a podcast, a book, a Patreon. Is that about uh, – there's probably stuff I'm missing. No, that's about it. We're trying to actually get that in one place on a website this year. But it's whatever whatever is like the little seed that comes before an empire. It's like a, it's like a germ. That's what it is. Hmm. Yeah. So what, in historical context, that would make you uh, like – I don't even know, like the when when the Greek the the minute when the Greeks and the Romans switched power. <laughs> ben Ben Epstein, you, you, don't, you don't you don't have the, that date off the top of your head, Mike. You don't know what today is, but you don't have that date uh, in mind. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I, I'm not very good with dates, but Ben Taylor is very good with dates and very good with history. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about. I mean, I think the reason I wanted to have you on, Ben, is that well, both Bens, but. Um, ben Taylor. I guess I should kind of think of nicknames for you too. But the reason I wanted to have you on is that I think that the two of us think a lot about basketball in the same way. We both really study NBA history. We both have an appreciation for where the game was and how that has led to where it evolves. We both appreciate skills like, I think you call it scalability, which is how does your skill kind of level up to a championship level and, and build around your team we both appreciate defense passing we both have some psychological background right you, you've studied psychology uh and you applied it to the nba is that correct that's correct right yeah you- yeah yeah yeah. no my my undergrad i before i did this i was basically a behavioral scientist in practice so my undergrad was in cognitive science which is 
related to psychology. And then my master's was in a related field as well. So at a certain point, if you can combine your two passions, that's actually where the thinking basketball name comes from is like, I would sit around all day studying thinking and then at night watch basketball. And I just tried to jam them together yeah. and make a baby. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's a very, it's a very cool baby. Um, I must say, I don't know. That's not usually how you describe a baby, <laughs> um, but there's one thing that you and I differ and that is, you just came out with your video that you do every year ranking the 10 best players in the NBA this season. You spend a lot of time. We joked on the show that you're kind of a professional ranker. And I think that ranking players is very stupid and a waste of time. And I, I've become to, come to think of this a little bit more over time, just that it it's un, unnecessarily limiting to a complex game. So I guess the first way to start, before we talk about LeBron versus Jordan, before we talk about Anthony Davis, before we talk about how to contextualize the bubble or whatever other topics we hit, why? What is, what is it about the act of ranking players that you think is useful to you to think about basketball that it obviously isn't for me? Well, I'm interested to hear more of why you are so down on rankings, um, but I will maybe try to lead you there in saying that the act of ranking basketball players at this point, especially like a single season ranking, like the top 10 is for me more about like understanding our uncertainties and just the deeper I get, the more you go, okay, my goal here is to really say, take Giannis. Like I know in a vacuum, I'm not going to take 20 players over Giannis. I'm not going to take 10 players over Giannis, but where do I actually create some certainty and say, all right, I don't think I can get to like five or six players or whatever the number is. I don't think I can get there. Um, so if that makes sense, right? Like part of the act of ranking, the more you actually don't think about the ranking and study the players and get into the nuances is when you come back and you try to stack them up, you're going, God, I'm just, I'm just swimming and living in this pool of uncertainty and just trying to create, it's a lot, you get into like epistemology and knowledge and like how we actually know things at the end of the day, because all, all you're really trying to do is say with some reasonable degree of confidence, what is like a boundary of what we know based on all the other stuff that you and I probably have in common, like breaking down skill sets and shooting and thinking about numbers and what's valuable in the team context and things like that. That's a great answer. It makes a lot of sense. Before I talk about why I hate rankings, <laughs> Ben Ben Epstein, like you, you're sort of falling in the middle of of us with the value. What what is it? What is ranking players' value to you? I think I think it's helpful. Number one, the NBA awards aren't rankings, right? We don't have some real way to understand. And I think what I like the most about watching the Thinking Basketball Top Ten from this year is that this was such a weird season. The playoffs almost mutated into a exaggerated version of where we think the game is going. Um, I think you did a great job of kind of, uh, Ben Taylor here, in describing the value of defense as we saw players uh, like maybe Dame Lillard exaggerate the space of the court a little bit more, what a um, drop defensive center's value is in the regular season compared to the, uh, to the postseason that we just saw. And I think that understanding that so much of the prey to hate towards rankings stems from when the awards come out and people 
lose their minds over, well, that's a regular season, this, or like, how could Giannis be the MVP when his team did why in the, um, you know, in the playoffs. And I think what you do a great job of, and I do like, or I do like rankings. I don't necessarily love head to head rankings. I think that when you look at the full scope uh, of the game, and I think you do a great job of this, Ben, it's, it's a more valuable tool. I think what Preda hates, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Mike, I want to hear this from you. Preda hates when we take player A and player B who are both objectively great at what they do. And then we try to put one ahead of the other. Yes. Uh, okay. So Mike, did I, did I, is that accurate? That That's part of it. Of course, that's what Ben does. Ben Taylor does in his video. We're basically ranking the best of the best, which is why I find that, that difference interesting. I mean, I think I'm with you in that, and I was thinking about this before we started recording today, the way people approach great basketball players um, is probably not the way they would approach any other great thing in life. If I said, name your two favorite movies, you wouldn't name your two favorite movies and start talking about how your second favorite movie uh, had an inappropriate runtime and, and you know, there was a plot hole at minute 37, which is ridiculous. And as you know, they were way under budget back then because they didn't know what they were doing with. But like, there's no other thing in life where you have this approach other than this very bizarre kind of war that evolves in sports where you're like, all right, fine, that guy might be the second best. But let me only tell you all these reasons why he's terrible. Right, it, it is a also, it, yeah. Go ahead, Ben. So that also trend, that transcends all their sports too. Basketball is unique in that it is five on five, and each person is responsible for the the totality of what they do on a basketball court. Some being able to do more than others. You don't, you can't even have that conversation in a sport like hockey or baseball or football, where each individual position has a different value set to what the equation of winning is. I think the best thing that you frame it as Ben in, in your video is essentially saying who at the end of the day, who has the most value to that outcome of winning the championship in a vacuum when all things are equal with the, the players around them. That is a lot different than what you can do in any other sport where rankings aren't necessarily as much of the conversation, a quarterback being a lot different than a left tackle, a safety being a lot different than a defensive tackle, a starting pitcher being a lot different than a leadoff hitter, et cetera, et cetera. And so you don't have apples to apples in other sports, but you do in basketball insofar as your best offensive player can be your best defensive player, can be the best passer, the best shooter, et cetera. All the things that you hit on when we come to that, that full scope of what it means to be the best. And this is where I think you guys agree the most. I think Mike, Mike spent his whole life trying to figure out what that means to, to necessarily be the most well-rounded best basketball player and does so essentially by breaking down film. It seems like, Ben, you have a great grasp on breaking down all the advanced analytics that we have at our disposal right now, putting that into a total, like a sort of a full picture. And so I guess what I'm trying to get out of Prado right now is, Mike, tell me where the diversion occurs here. Tell me where this adversion in your case, too, to rankings stems from and then where you have trouble maybe getting into where Ben Taylor has his rankings. So I think the biggest the biggest reason is the discourse around it, which is not necessarily the fault of the rankings themselves. And just to, to like the way Ben was saying is that, you know, if we are going to try to rank one versus two, you necessarily have to explain why one is better than two. And that in our adversarial system has got to mean that two, all the characteristics you talk about with two are negative compared to all the ones that are positive and around and around it goes. And that that's annoying. 
just as a discourse perspective. And, you know, I get why we do it. It just, I, I think this, I just think the sport's too beautiful for that and too cool. And I just, I just don't think it's, I think it's boring. But the number one reason I don't like player rankings is that you don't take the aggregate of all the players on the team, weigh it against the aggregate of all the players on the other team and decide who wins. Like, it's a team. It's a team game. I'm fine with ranking teams, like that's how the, the game is decided. But I just think that there in basketball, one of the beauties of the sport is that one plus one doesn't always equal two. Sometimes one plus one equals two hundred if it's the right one and the right one, and sometimes it equals zero point one if it's the wrong fitting. And to me, that's like the beauty of it. And if you try to just if you spend the whole time just thinking about how valuable is one and how valuable is the other one. It just reduces the coolness and the complexity of the game in a way that I, I think is a little reductive. So that's mostly what my my objection is. So I didn't entirely answer why I actually or where I see the value in them. And that's a perfect jumping off point to um, get to that answer, which is for me, I think we, we all kind of have hierarchies in our head naturally, right? If you're a team, if you're a coach, you have sort of hierarchy of, okay, I, here's my lineup or here are my top rim protectors. Here are my top ball handlers. I want them on the court. If you're a general manager, you're going to have a draft board that has a hierarchy. Your free agency lists create hierarchies. We all kind of do this naturally. And so the question becomes, uh, when you actually are forced to take those concepts in the abstract, like a great off-ball shooter or a lead creator or a rim protector or something, and try to, and this this is where Mike, I think you and I overlap the most. I mean, I see basketball players as like superheroes with different skills, but unlike like the Marvel universe, they don't have one skill. Everyone has a unique combination of superpowers, and trying to figure out where that has value, that's where like the ranking and putting the rubber to the road, to me, actually has conversational merit. But I'm doing it in a kind of subversive way because what I really want to talk about is unpacking the uncertainty and unpacking those skills and put the focus on those things to your point to say, hey, if you took the top three players, it doesn't have to be this year, but if you took the top three players in some given year and put them on the same team, you might not actually have a better team than if you took three perfectly fitting together players from somewhere else on the list. And the precise reason is because of this strength or this weakness that we can discuss when we lay them out. So that, that actually to me is where I see the value in being forced to rank. Um, but in a way it's very much trying to move away from the reductive single dimension simplicity of a ranking and getting to like all those subcomponents of, of, you know, what puts a player in that position. That's why I love your approach. And I wish more people took it, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I think that's a good way of putting it. But even even when that within that framework, aren't we really ranking combinations more than we're ranking parts? I mean, in a sense, I mean, this actually is a really good segue to the Lakers as a team and where they stand because this is a team that had the two best players in your top ten list. And the, all season long, the question was, who the heck is the third best player? And there was this sort of question of, do they have? We talked about it in the Miami. Lakers pre with our Lakers friends like the Lakers have the two best players in the series Miami may have the next best six and what does that even mean and like how do you even put value in that but and then you were talking a little bit about this on your last podcast with our friend Seth Partnow like 
is there what is the value of having two great players and then you don't know exactly what you're going to get from everybody else but i mean if you add up the sum of all those role players in a fixed way they don't equal a supporting cast but around these two players they do and is that because these two players are so good or is it because there's some special alchemy in the combinations that makes one plus one equal to 200 and i, I don't know that Am I getting Ben Epstein? I'm sure we're getting very theoretical here, but I just think it's an interesting discussion when it comes to the Lakers because you know it, it's so easy to say they're a two man team, and it's so easy to say they're a deep team. But it, there's something unique about the way the hierarchy of the team that I think you just can't replicate. It's sort of useless to try to think, oh, how do we become like the Lakers? It's just such a unique alchemy that's more interesting to me to study the combinations of players than the players themselves. So without saying, I do, first off, I do think this is the right abstract conversation because we're looking at it in retrospect. Uh, I, I like, I like thinking back to when we had the Lakers, uh, uh, heat, you know, whatever, uh, preview with, uh, the two guys, uh, with, uh, Anthony and, and, uh, Harrison, you know, the, the very Laker fan slash, they follow the team very close and Anthony reduced it all down to, well, like, I think it's as simple as the two best players in the series are on the same team. And historically that's what wins. And then you went through and gave a few outliers for sure, where the best player and the second best player, maybe in a series were on the same team and lost probably the heat uh, being the best example I could think of uh, against the Mavs most recently. Um, You know, and then, I mean, I'd say LeBron was still probably the best player in the series against Golden State when Cleveland won. But the rest of the best players uh, after that were on Golden State. Now, that is to say that I keep thinking in my head about that juxtaposition of the the Clippers this year and the Raptors last year. And then how much greater or less great is Kawhi based upon the pieces around him, how that made him. And that's where the rankings can be, you know, not questioned, but ultimately that's where I think, you know, you think about Prada's holistic approach to this is a little bit the ding, 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 ding. I use the word holistic. That's a thing on this podcast, Ben. Uh, and so, uh, but th- th- I think like looking at the Lakers through one prism and then the, the Clippers slash Kawhi slash Raptors as the other side of the coin is a really interesting way to think about this because Kawhi is not a lesser basketball player this year. The pieces around him definitely were not there to amplify what makes him that probably number one or two guy from last year, maybe in your rankings. I don't, I, I don't know where you had Kawhi at the end of last year. Probably not in that. No, have- no. I had Kawhi in a place that um, got me a tremendous amount of hate mail. Uh, <laughs> I, so I had him fourth this year, but yep. realistically for this conversation, sort of in the back of that elite group. Um, and I do think he improved in clear ways that kind of puts him there as a central piece on a lot of teams. But the focus I had last year, I think he ended up fifth last year. And the focus I had was you have a great score and Toronto has this beautiful team that is lacking great scoring. And when you swap out DeMar DeRozan for Kawhi Leonard, you're going to have a beautiful fit. You've got amplification of, of his skills and of the parts. They sort of fit together holistically. Did I get that right? (laughs) (laughs) So And then I had Anthony Davis fourth. And again, you're talking about, well, he's in a situation in New Orleans where people are saying, you know, shouldn't you be able to carry a team or you haven't done this or that in the playoffs. And my focus and my emphasis is always on like, well, you can get a lot from watching them in the regular season. Watch how he plays 
in big time games. Watch how he plays against elite competition. I actually thought in 2018 in the Warriors series, uh, I wouldn't call him better, right? Like you wouldn't watch a game with Curry and Durant and Davis and just be like, oh, Davis is better than all of them. But watching those games, you can start to see how his skills are still going to carry over even in the highest of environments. And so, like, I think to your point, um, having that in mind when you actually go to rank and, and using that to drive the conversation is really the thing for me uh, that I think has the value. Well, so the, then I guess what you're really saying is your rankings are much more consistent year to year and you put a lot of thought into them um, because I think a lot, I think Ben's point is that Kawhi was probably ranked at a higher stratosphere generally last year than this year, even though his he was probably better because, and it was because of his team more so than anything. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, I guess for me, I'm trying to, part of the fun, part of the exercise, part of the reason why this conversation exists more or is made more for basketball is there's a balance right between like, okay, an individual can have a lot of impact on a game. There's only five guys on his team four four other guys on his team, but you're still, there's still nine other players on the court, two head coaches, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still every game, every series, every season, you're not only relying on the performance of those other guys, but as we've been talking about the fit, between your skills and the guys around you. That takes us back to the Lakers, right? Where, okay, fine. You have the two best guys in the series or two of the top five players or however you want to think about it in that level. But it's kind of useless if they're filled up with the wrong role players around them. Useless in quotes. Yeah, useless in quotes. That's right. And I think that there's something to be said for the the positioning of role players to understand the max you need to get out of them, which occurs when you have the right mixture of skill sets from your best player, which goes to the amplification relationship here. I think that you're trying or that you get at nicely. I I think LeBron puts people in a mindset to do their job in a way that I'm not sure other superstars do. And, And that is to say that, he even did that to Anthony Davis in a lot of ways, the number two guy in your rankings. LeBron is number one in, in Ben's rankings this year. There was a really interesting article, and in, I think it was either Wall Street Journal or Forbes, I'm probably misquoting it now, about uh, this past week, essentially on the value of that max player, right? What the, uh, what, the, uh, the, what the point is between how much someone is paid and the actual expected value they get from that contract. And we know, I think it was in Michael Jordan's what last season, he got like 28% of his teams, 27% of his team's overall cap. And it was like $33 million for one season or something like that, or 28 million. I'm, I'm misquoting it, but in that range, LeBron, if you use that same relationship to cap now, you know, and the value you get out of it, he should make like $80 million a year. Um, and that is to say that like he is, that much more valuable than the other max players. But part of what that value is, is that even another max, ultimately number two in your rankings, best player like Anthony Davis. And I think that he helped LeBron in a lot of ways too, but he finds his proper positioning, which is to say that LeBron kind of gives that amount of, of credence to the position you need to play, the role you need to fit in that I don't think that even like a Kawhi did. I think Kawhi came into a team with people who had their spot filled. They knew the role they needed to play on a successful team. And to your point, Kawhi becomes that additional piece fulfilling what he does best, which then makes that team great. 
that that wasn't the Clippers this year. The Clippers needed him to get, you know, more out of or they, they needed to get more out of their supporting test. And that was not right. a reality of a lot of the players they had being a lot of them being one dimensional guys. But the one dimensional pieces on the Lakers were maxed out. They got maximum rebounding and rim protection from Dwight. They got maximum ball control, distribution and defensive uh, perimeter defense, I should say, from from, you know, uh, from Rondo, from KCP, from and Danny Green's a great you know, Danny Green's a great piece to look at because he fulfilled the role that was needed on two consecutive championship teams, three in his career now. And they've all kind of been the same thing, but at the maximum potential, you want to get out of Danny Green. He doesn't have to hit 50% of his threes. Quick aside, all the hate that Danny Green got from social media, completely ridiculous, but that's, we don't need to go there. I'm sure, yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, but then the question that, see, in some ways then this question is now more interesting ranking-wise with like the rest of the roster rather than LeBron and AD. Why should should my opinion of Contavious Caldwell Pope's forget if it's like ranking like fifty like two hundred two hundredth versus one hundred and fiftieth or whatever? But what? How should my opinion of Rajon Rondo, Contavious Caldwell Pope, Danny Green, all of these other people change based on what they accomplished? It seems to me that it's almost there's almost no point in say in parsing the value of those players because so much of it is based on how it fits around the hole. And the other interesting thing about it is that I can't, I struggle to find a criteria that really links the Lakers together other than, I mean, I guess their defense, but just that team doesn't look like it should have fit well together, but it did, you know, and not everyone plays better with LeBron. Just ask Jay Crowder. So I, I just, with all this complexity, I just don't really know like what, the, to me, it's more interesting to look at why certain combinations work in certain players. And so that's – but like, how should I think about some of these other Lakers now after they've won this title playing with these two guys? Well, let me ask you something specific about what you just said. When you say it didn't look like they should fit together, I, I'm definitely unique in how I viewed Anthony Davis in the past. It feels like sort of Kevin Garnett 2.0 for me going through those same motions of bad team to good team. And, but I didn't, I actually waited my whole life to see LeBron play with sort of a pick and roll vertical oh, partner. Like, yeah. Right. Bosch pops. Yeah. And, and then I, you, I guess not. And then you get the role pieces around that. I think the question the question I had about the Lakers, and and by the way, I don't know if there's a, a strong statistical case or even an eye test case to say they look like an all-time dominant team. They didn't need to be, right? But I guess my question is, um, what what to you look like it didn't fit based on the players you're talking about? Maybe Rondo aside, because he, he seemed to overperform. Well, Rondo was a big part of it. Um, I was very confident that AD and LeBron would be just perfect teammates, but I didn't know if they had enough shooting. I didn't know. I I wrote a piece earlier in the year. I said, this is, if LeBron's going to be your main playmaker and play point guard, like that's going to wear him out and you're going to need other playmakers. And I, at the time, did not really place a lot of value in Rajon Rondo. I didn't think that Caruso or KCP, these are guys with attributes I liked. Um, but I didn't think – I thought that if they're going to play big and they're going to play centers, they didn't have enough shooting to maximize the best element of what would bring LeBron and AD together. And it turns out that what happened – I mean, 
there's so many ways to describe what happened to that team. I think number one is their commitment to defense, and we'll talk about AD and LeBron in the finals MVP discussion, which I think is interesting. But the number one thing is that LeBron was just such a good passer that it kind of masked some of their weaknesses as a shooting team. They cut so well, he slipped passes into such tight windows, and they were able to be effective, and then they became the best fast-breaking team in the league and they, when you combine that, so there are just all sorts of things that happened that kind of brought them together and on the court in ways that I just didn't expect. It didn't look like a mix that would have made sense. And maybe that's my fault for not recognizing how the pieces would fit. But if, if it's true, if many people have the view that these role players didn't fit really well, and then they did, how do we then, who gets the credit for that? Is that a, is that. LeBron and AD and how they make other people better? Is it their unique combination? Is it just one of the two? Is it the coach? Is it the players themselves for buying in? Is it just this sort of combination of finding, being able to play their skill set in places they couldn't before? These are things that I think are more interesting in a specific way than an abstract way. And so I just, that's why it's sort of, those are the questions I have. And it almost takes you down such a long rabbit hole that it, it just, I feel like we could start to overthink these things, but that's just me. I don't know. Maybe you have a better way of thinking of it. Well, I'll simplify it a little bit. I don't want to be too reductive, but I'll simplify it to the point of saying if Rondo, and this certainly happened for me, and I think most people, if Rondo all of a sudden becomes more valuable with his playmaking, his defense isn't problematic. All these things that raise his value in theory anywhere and he's able to apply that specifically to the Lakers and help them with that additional ball handling, playmaking, Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard actually becomes a, a valuable piece when he's able to match up. And, you know, he got he got, he got a little Dennis Rodman-y, you know, in terms of just going in there with his minutes. And <laughs> I was going to say Greg Kite, but Dennis Rodman might be a little kinder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think that to simplify what you're saying a bit, you can go and look at how players perform. Maybe KCP is the best example. And this happens all the time. And it brings me back to the psychology stuff we alluded to at the top. Until something has happened, human beings are like very reluctant to admit something can happen uh, in the sense of, well, oh, this guy, KCP has got to be the guy that makes big shots. And he's got, you're not going to win a championship like that. Well, they said that about Danny Green. They said that about second round draft pick Derek Fisher. They said that, I mean, you know, this, this is just gets spoken over and over and over again. Oh, it's lovely that the Celtics signed Eddie House. But I mean, what's Eddie House done? He's not going to come off your bench and hit big shots in a playoff game. And it's, it's a little like Black Swan fallacy to me where um, we just tend not to give those guys credit until we see them do it as if it's this impossible athletic achievement uh, to continue with your skill set later in the playoffs. And yes, some people do fall off or uh, maybe struggle a bit with certain pressure when it's put on their shoulders. Of course, that's a thing. But to me, that would be the answer is to, we can look at Rondo and Dwight, but we can also look at guys like uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope and say, Hey, you're a viable three and D player. Uh, you fulfilled defensive responsibilities in different sets pretty well. Not only did you make three-pointers and play around a creator like LeBron like that, so I think you could do that in another system, but I think he was smart about uh, using that three-point shot to attack the basket, you know, so you're 
sometimes you shoot, sometimes you close out. I think that's my approach to how vote. You could do the same thing with Vogel, right? I think Vogel had a good playoffs, uh, and the fact that he's thinking about how to use his defensive pieces, um, he's certainly shown that in the past in Indiana and other places. But that that would be my approach to it. Do you do you rank coaches too? I have a, <laughs> I have kind of a very rough tiering of coaches in my head. I find ranking coaches and even kind of trying to understand their value extremely difficult. To Mike's point, like the coaching matters and the way the whole thing fits together matters. But to me, there's so much uncertainty. We never get to see coaches in practice basically. I mean, technically, sometimes we're in practice, but um, we don't get to see them planning um, behind the scenes and with the wipe. We don't get to be in the huddle. And so we, as observers, tend to make judgments on things like the rotation, because we can see that. And that's very easy to understand. Or a specific, back in the day, it used to be a matchup change. Uh, basketball was much more discreet back in like the night. They were like, why are they, why don't they put him on that guy? Um, fortunately, you can't kind of do that anymore. So maybe that'll, no, that's it, not even going away. I, I was thinking maybe that'll go away, but it's not. You <laughs> I was still gonna hear say, it in, I hear it all the time. I, I feel like it's almost more pronounced now, but the matchups yeah. are all so different. Yeah, which well, is like, ironic. Yeah. I like giving too much credit to inbounds plays, like uh, out of timeouts. That's my yep. favorite. Especially yep. after the ESPN article a few weeks back about like the, the lost art of stealing plays, essentially. Then like Brett Brown being like, oh, that one, that's from the Japanese women's team from the Olympics 12 years ago. It's like, well, <laughs> that was our yep. most efficient play out of bounds for the last three years. Um, I'm a Sixers fan. So, uh, and I still love Brett Brown. But that being said, uh, yeah, I, I love your approach here to kind of thinking about coaching as that iceberg uh, relationship where we're seeing the tip out of water, but most of it is, is underneath of the, of the water. Uh, I was just curious because it seems like the way you think about your rankings would lend itself to not having coaching rankings. It would feel like that would be a little bit almost the opposite way that you approach um, classifying, you know, success. Um, and, and ultimately like, the way you put your evaluations in, Mike, are you, are you in that same boat? Wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to rank coaches either. I know you don't like ranking in general, but I'm just, just curious because Vogel's a really interesting guy, right? He was a kind of ahead of the curve with how to defend the game in 2010 or 11 or whatever it might be sort of was blown up by the league changing. A lot of his pieces on his Pacers team made no sense for the evolution of the sport as it was evolving. And then obviously Vogel comes into a new team here where he's given, I think, a situation where if they win the championship, congratulations, you have LeBron on your team. And if they don't succeed, well, then Frank Vogel did a bad job. They hired essentially his assistant coach to be a more popular, better known person than him and Jason Kidd. Not one that anyone wanted to have as the head coach, but ultimately he could see the person potentially over his shoulder who they would replace him with should things not go well. And then he wins a championship and isn't getting nearly the type of credit that like Nurse got last year, probably rightfully so or that Spo would have gotten had they won this year. And I just think it's interesting when we think about coaching and what that means to those players you were just talking about, the KCPs of the world, the way that a Dwight and a Rondo fit, um, finding someone like Caruso to become as valuable of an asset as he was. So just curious how we, how we relate that acceleration of, of, or, uh, of someone's career into that moment. Because I do believe in that, that fallacy that you just mentioned there, Ben, about what well, we haven't seen it happen 
therefore it can exist. And then once it does, of course, that's the way it could be or can be. Um, and the NBA is so weird like that. I, I want to ask you a question about, did the bubble change the way you think about any of the players in your top 10? Not, not necessarily the playoffs, but the way that they played on a neutral court without fans on the same basket, shooting on the same hoop, practicing all those things that go into sort of how shooters become enamored or players become enamored with a specific home venue that they like a lot. You always hear about, I love playing in Madison square garden. My best games were there. Did the bubble itself, that basketball was played in essentially a base level arena where, where you could throw out things like travel. Did that change the way that you thought about your rankings or your players that are on them? It, it's a small enough sample still, and there's enough uncertainty that I don't know if there's a, certainly not in the top 10, maybe. Um, but there are obviously guys who emerge from this bubble where you're going, is this, is this real? And on one hand, it could be the play, right? It could be how, how much of this Jamal Murray are we going to see the next time they actually have a season? Um, Donovan Mitchell's not going to shoot 55% on pull-up threes or whatever it is, but how much of, you know, they had another four months to work on their game. I talked about this with Seth on my show recently, where it's like, we kind of, the, the big conflator for me with the bubble is that we just had another off season before it. And it was different in a way than prior off seasons, prior off seasons have a rhythm. They have a calendar. Um, you go to summer league, you are preparing stuff with your trainer. You know, when falls falls going to start and you're going to have walkthroughs and pre in like preseason. This wasn't that this was people in lockdown and guys on social media being like, I don't have a basketball, but maybe they really are training harder than ever behind the scenes. Like this was another three, four, five months, whatever it was to, integrate new skills and ramp up those skills. And then to your point to play in a bubble where, I mean, how much benefit did that shooting backdrop that they created have for certain players? My assumption is a little, but I don't know. So for the top 10 guys, I think most top 10 guys um, outside of maybe Luca and to a degree Jokic they're veterans. There's, it takes a lot to get really, really, really good in the NBA. The one I allude to at the top of the video is Paul George. I My questions were about his shoulder and like recovering from his shoulder surgery. I was never super concerned with what I saw in January, February, March, things like that. I mean, but he's someone who I think has admitted that the the psychological situation of the bubble got to him in a way that prevented him like he the Clippers needed him to not just step up in a basketball way, but probably a personality way with given the personalities on that team. I still think the Clippers fatal flaw is roster construction um, and used a great term. They just have a lot of one dimensional players and it's hard to kind of tinker those parts, but out of the top guys, that's probably the only guy who the, the bubbleness of things um, I think was really on my mind was with George. Yeah. And you replace him with Jimmy Butler, who thrived in the bubble atmosphere and the closeness of it and everything that Paul George didn't. Right. Yeah. I mean, re replace is not the right word there, since I think there were right. a, okay. a ton of guys in that range. You chose um, you chose him in that yeah. spot. Who yeah. are the other guys I, in that range out of curiosity? Before? Okay. So, so Gobert is in that range for me. Um, Jason Tatum is in that range. Uh, 
George is still probably it's hard it's hard to, for me to really just be like nah Paul George isn't a top 17 or 20 player or whatever it is anymore um I'll tell you another name I looked at who really would have got me in a lot of trouble and I don't think you know I'm not comfortable taking him over a guy like Butler but um Carl Anthony Towns and just his offensive mm-hmm. what what his offensive game um if you had the right pieces around it and like Jokic if you had a team that could cover some of his defensive weaknesses, what does that ceiling actually look like? Uh, you know, like I said, I'm not comfortable. I chose Butler for a reason, um, but he's like, to me, he's kind of in that range of player. You know, I'm not going to be comfortable saying there are 20 guys I'd rather have than Carl Anthony Towns. One more name on that li- uh, in that group that I just remembered is Chris Middleton. He's another guy who's kind of in that range for me. And Middleton was someone I wrote about right before the playoffs started. Is like he was on this incredible heater coming at, at, into the shutdown, and would that continue? And it's sort of interesting to see how he ranks. Um, we're going to take a little, just a quick break, and then I want to talk about uh, legacy stuff. This is the Limited Upside Podcast. Good news if you're disappointed like me that the NBA season is over. Or at least it's good news for people who, unlike me, love this sport, which appears to be the majority of this country. The wait's finally over. Football is back, for now at least, but probably for a while. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division and championship futures all day, every day. There will be a winner for the NFC East, I promise. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. The Limited Upside Podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need. 
just like they have for over 3 million businesses. And right now, Indeed is offering limited upside listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post. That means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Welcome back to Limited Upside Podcast. Ben Epstein, Ben Taylor of Thinking Basketball. And you're also, in addition to being a professional ranker, as we have described you, <laughs> uh, you are you, you really take a long look at basketball history. Um, and so I think we should probably start talking about some of the legacy implications for the key players in this finals. And the number one of those, of course, is LeBron versus Michael Jordan, uh, who's better. And you said before the podcast, you thought people were getting this all wrong in terms of how they thought about it. What did you mean by that? Well, you know how you feel about rankings. That's how I feel about legacy conversations. <laughs> um, mostly, be- mostly, mostly because I have seen enough history, and Mike, you probably have as well, for me to always question who- who's defining legacy and what do we mean by it, because it's shaped and told differently depending on who's kind of who's who the speaker is and what their sort of um, criteria or idea of a legacy is, right? Right. That makes sense. So in that vein, and I, so basically it is a very similar argument. It's all in the eye of the beholder and it gets toxic. And, you know, the NBA that LeBron plays in is so different than the NBA that Jordan played in, which we've talked about before the two of us, uh, just how much the game has changed in the last five years. But if you're just sort of talking to somebody who like really wants some clarity on like, how do I differentiate between LeBron and Jordan? Uh, if you're talking, I mean, Ben, you talk about this as something Ben Epstein, your friends talk about this all the time. What, uh, Ben, what, what would you start? Where would you start with that conversation exactly? Yeah. So the buckets essentially go into one game. Who do you want to win one game <laughs> versus who do you want to, to win? Uh, you know, who do you want for the long haul? Like it's, it's basically one at bat versus a full season. It's, the last shot versus the seven game series. It's all of the kind of micro versus macro relationship because LeBron's career as it's still going on and he is somehow summoning powers that talk about superhero powers, uh, longevity is an incredible one. Um, physical prowess, caring about your body. I mean, the, the, the impossible part of the Jordan LeBron debate that we kind of get into. Yes. Jordan has his six and six, that is always what people kind of caveat with or at least put in the Jordan camp. Six titles, six MVPs, six and oh, right? In the NBA finals. What, what is lost in that conversation is the first, whatever, six years of Jordan's career, the retirement in the middle. When he was LeBron's age, he was already on the Mike, You remember those Wizards teams? Um, yeah, not a whole lot. You come, not those parts are all left out of the conversation. So there's right. selectivity, and that is very important when you maybe take the LeBron side of this, if we're going to have the argument, or then the Jordan side. Now, LeBron's legacy is still being written. If he's the best player in the NBA at 38 years old <laughs> and winning another title, then like what? Then what are we even talking about at this point? Because that is so unprecedented from a physical nature, from a physical status 
And then he will have spanned legitimately multiple eras of basketball. Jordan touched different eras, but they were very similar. He retired right before the game completely changed and got essentially his success came in one era. He didn't win the title in the era that preceded his success um, in, in the 80s there. So I think if you're talking about one game versus one shot versus a full series versus the longevity of, you know, whatever, the Rolling Stones Beatles analogy, then you're already coming at this from a place where you're never going to get to a, a good answer. A lot of my friends fall into that six titles, you know, killer instinct, all those things. They are the same people who knock LeBron for making that pass to Danny Green and then he wins the title the next game and is, you know, wins the MVP unanimously. And so it's really about where you want to put the emphasis for what quote unquote greatness means. That is ultimately extremely subjective and something that people struggle with coming to common ground with. I would like to know from both of you, which part of that persuasion is in your greatness calculus. If we have to talk about legacy, what does that actually mean? So go ahead, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. Um, I guess let me let me just start with something like six rings and six finals and the story uh it's kind of a hero's journey right uh here's this guy and he can't get over the top and he's criticized and he shoots too much and then the zen master comes in and gives sprinkles some fairy dust and he goes off in the desert and he comes back and he's like team basketball the triangle i'll still score 32 a game but whatever it's the right amount and now i'm unstoppable uh that is a story i love stories Humans love stories, and that's a story that people love. I feel like legacy goes there, where if I'm an individual and I love that story, that's the thing I'm actually defending when I get into an argument with, hey, six finals, six rings, you can't top that. Meaning it almost becomes tautological. It becomes a, a, a kind of a circular thing where you're saying like, greatness to me is that arc. Greatness to me is six rings and 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 creating that i've read written about this before creating that sense of invincibility with jordan uh we saw it with Kawhi a little this year where people were like oh Kawhi's inevitable Kawhi's got that he's got that thing he's got that thing you want to identify that ethereal thing that feels so fun and and feels so powerful and that's greatness and that's my kind of what i meant by i think people go in the wrong direction because when you go way down that rabbit hole, you get to the kind of discussions we see in today's social media landscape. And the more you do that, the more you eliminate the way they actually played basketball, the teams they were on. And, and my favorite thing, the beauty of how those things fit together and how different players can skin the cat differently and so on and so forth. You eliminate a lot of their differences in psychology in prowess in their approach. It's like, yeah, Jordan and other players of that ilk are going to shoot that quadruple team shot. Um, for some people, that may be a great legacy. For other people, that may not be a great legacy, right? Um, Jordan retiring may be problematic, whereas someone like Bill Russell just kept going somehow. Um, I still can't quite figure out how Bill Russell was. They called the Celtics old in 1963, and he won six more championships. <laughs> We're going to talk yeah. about Bill Russell, by the way. 
in a little bit because I have an interesting comparison. So don't hold the Bill Russell thought. Um, okay. Well, no, I'll leave it there because I think that's that's sort of uh, the the leading takeaway I have from what Ben just said. Yeah, I mean, you make a really good point about sort of the. I think Jordan's journey is just cleaner. Like there is much more of a hero's journey. And when you think about LeBron's journey, there is three, four teams really, because two Cleveland teams. There's winning with all of them. There is failure, a lot of failure, interrupted failure. There is un there's triumph in a way that is hard to wrap your head around, like 2016. There is you know, obviously, the, there are elements of Jordan's journey early in his Cavaliers career, but there's also he made the finals so early on in his career. There's the fact that, like, he's made so many finals but has won fewer of them. I just think the journey is a little bumpier and messier um, in the long run. And, I mean, a better, maybe a good way of putting it is it's more abstract. It's more difficult to pin down. But then I also wonder, like, is that a reflection of the fact that it's still going? Like, was... <laughs> I remember vaguely that Jordan, like Zach Lowe wrote this really well. Like Jordan did feel more inevitable than LeBron feels. But I I think some of this is also hindsight bias playing a role in how Jordan's story is told. And obviously, to your point, Ben, LeBron's story is not done. Um, so it just, it seems to me like it's just, it, it's a simple argument to say Jordan is better because it was just such a simpler story. Um, and I... This is why I hate rankings in the first place is because we are essentially, I think, the kind of ranking stories that make sense rather than we're ranking attributes that are complicated. Okay. There's there's another thing in play here, too, which is the sensational sensationalism and uh, um, uh, almost like movie. So I, if there's the hero's journey, then there's the human's journey, too. It is more human to fail, to not have a perfect straight line to success, to not be six for six. Some people find themselves more psychologically, I think, looking for their hero. And some people try to find someone who looks more like them. Now, with that in mind, failure, insecurity, things that LeBron has. And LeBron has insecurities that are quite literally in your face or on your head. People listening, <laughs> you, I just pointed to my head uh, because I keep my head shaved. Michael Jordan, when he started going bald at twenty two years old, started shaving his head. LeBron wears his insecurities in a way that makes people think he is not, uh, you know, that that power-hungry, craven person that Jordan is, that Tiger Woods is, uh, that a lot of the, I think, people that associate with the greatest in their sports, there's a, like a maniacal drive to win, to constantly be the guy to take that shot. It manifests itself both in how they play and how we think about that person. LeBron has failed. Like we saw LeBron as a 16 year old, 17 year old. His story is an arc where we have more chapters that precede his greatness, where there are more, again, chapters to be written, and also chapters that culminate in failure. And we've watched him lose, and it takes a lot more to look at someone losing. And it takes a lot more out of that human being uh, to show, you know, to show defeat, to come back from, uh, um, you know, a non self-inflicted time off or, or, and in Jordan's case, you know, his quote unquote retirement in the middle of the nineties, like that was a Michael Jordan and, and, and Stern decision that was important for his ability to come back and still have a legacy that wasn't tarnished by other things. Now 
we know that in retrospect. <laughs> but this idea that there is some kind of like superhero that we want from our movies, that's a nice straight line and an arc that's easy to follow, that's Michael Jordan's story. Okay. I have a question. It, Do people think about Barry Sanders as inevitable? Uh, no. I mean, so I guess what I would ask there is, is Barry Sanders the reference point because of individual short success where there was almost no team success, right? I don't even think, I think they made the playoffs one time in his career, I believe, uh, losing to the Eagles by a shit ton. And, uh, no, it was, a, it was a couple times, but a couple there, times. there wasn't okay. a lot of success there. No, no playoff wins. No playoff wins. I believe that's um, right, yeah. Yes. Um, so, and so, so, so yeah, yes, that, that no, it's because he has individual success without team success. And the reason I just want to seed Barry Sanders in all of our heads is to think about this story if Scottie Pippen doesn't come to the Bulls, if they don't bring in Pippen and Grant. Um, what happens there? Well, I think the short answer is we don't get that clean arc that we've been talking about that you just summarized. The more complex answer is it's fairly possible, maybe even more than likely uh, probable, that Jordan's mystique and that type of uh, hero, um, that's his style of play, never becomes lionized because he doesn't, he's not in a position to create the sense of inevitability. In a team sport, you need KCP and Danny Green and John Paxson, and you need all those guys to create that individual aura in a way beyond what Mike and I geek out about with your skill set and the things you do and all that. And so that to me has always been one of the great what ifs in NBA history. If those guys don't come along, you know, does, does he demand a trade? Like what happens with that team? How long can he take losing? And then you look, you can compare and contrast these totally different arcs from players that look very similar. My favorite is Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett. And just imagining like what would happen if they just, we're on each other's teams. Um, you know, how would we think about that? Even if you want to say, wow, I really like Duncan Moore, you're not getting five championships out of the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's just, it's just not happening. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll throw that out there for you guys. But see, here, here's the question. Like then I would flip back at you, which is why don't we, what, what happens to LeBron James if he doesn't go to Miami? You know, if he doesn't team up and then what happens if he goes back to Cleveland, they don't, they don't complete the Kevin Love trade, and I mean, really, the more the most dramatic example is what happens if he goes to L.A. and they can't get Anthony Davis. You know what the the butterfly effect would work there too. I mean, I think it's interesting that the more important spot to do it in is in the Cleveland days. Like, what happens if he stays in Cleveland? Um, why? What What does that do to the like sort of mystique of how LeBron plays if he doesn't? You know, that what's the difference, I guess, is what the, I'm saying. Okay, so the I think the difference is that with LeBron, we're dealing with a story that's already not as clean. So, you know, whether he would then end up with one championship run or two, maybe like a Wilt Chamberlain type of career instead in terms of the team success, um, I don't know if it muddles up his legacy. With Jordan, not only do I think it really is a thought experiment that kind of blows up some of the mystique around him. But I think the ramifications are fascinating for basketball because we have now been in a generation for maybe more, right? Like 20 plus years where people are saying, hey, the way to play is this way. You need this mentality. 
You need to take the shot at the last second. You don't pass the ball at the last second. And the best thing in basketball, obviously, is to score the most. If you if you're the big time scorer and you can raise up against double team and have that um, what are the killer mentality and all these kinds of things that have been spoken about this since then, that's the way to play. And I'm going to talk about this in my uh, historical series coming up in the off season on the greatest peaks. This was not a thing that really existed before Jordan. I mean, heck, the goatness debate wasn't as sort of crystallized. It was younger in the earlier days of basketball, but the, the, the style that was um, sort of try mimicked or attempted to be mimicked by everyone was more about Russell and Walton and uh, you know, UCLA centers and Kareem. It was Larry bird and magic. Like it was just a very different zeitgeist about what's valuable in basketball. See, it's funny you say that. And we're going to talk about the Russell. Sorry to cut you off, Ben, but um what couldn't you then and so to some degree we can't there's that happens because of time like let's check back in 2040 and see what sort of zeitgeist lebron is inspired but then also to look back in history like what if bill russell gets draft gets drafted by who had the first pick the hawks instead well they did draft him right or, the, or, was, or they traded trade. him what if they didn't right. trade him and he he doesn't end up on a team with I mean, those Celtics were kind of had great offensive players, but no way to wrap around to nobody to kind of link them together and make them better defensively. They were always sort of like kind of high scoring and they lose in the playoffs. What if that doesn't happen? What does that mean for the sort of tower of the big band over time? And we could <laughs> we could sort of do this all day. Um so I are, just, we, are we allowed to talk about Russell now? Is this the Russell I don't topic? Know. Or? I don't know. I actually had thought about Russell in a slightly different way. Ben, you were going to say something before we move on. I was just going to say that the um, the way that we talk about like a narrative or uh, I'll, I'll use the term like the marketing of the terms. So like the marketing of what legacy means the the context that we put around what legacy means a lot of this and i'm not going to get political but a lot of this is like when a um a moderator of a debate asks a question using a talking point okay using something that is a sculpted way to ask a question not necessarily based uh in the most direct way to ask a question but how to ask a question based upon the most popular way to ask it or the way that has already been contextualized by certain network or uh, a certain movement. Okay. And so like a good example of this would be like healthcare, right? The idea that somehow having a full country with healthcare, that's now like quote unquote socialism, right? Something like that. The way that we contextualize legacy and greatness between LeBron and Jordan is through the lens of Jordan, not through the lens of LeBron. It's because there's a finished career already. It's because this statement has been made about what we perceived for a number of years to be unattainable by anyone else. And therefore, everyone else is being graded through that lens. And so, and so in, insofar as if you ever lost a championship, you've already fallen short of what we perceive to be that grand legacy of six for six. I think that in reinventing what legacy means, rethinking it might be more impressive to win with three different teams through multiple eras of the game, through Tim Duncan's NBA into Steph Curry's NBA. Um, and that, that to me is how that, you know, 2040 perspective is probably the lens we should be looking at this through. 
as opposed to the 1994 perspective or 1998 perspective. And I think the way that we that you say that. talk about legacy is, is, is very in, in, you know, ingrained in how we come to our conclusion. Yeah, that's a great point. I, that, that thought is really interesting with like sort of is it the fact that he's going to do it with three teams going to mean more when everyone's switching teams. Last time I wanted to discuss, um, we, I mentioned Russell, and I don't know if this is where you were thinking the Russell conversation would go, Ben Taylor, but um, you did a video recently about the brilliance of Anthony Davis on defense in that series. Um, I'm sort of trying to figure out a way to wedge into that conversation with a newsletter post and struggling. Um LeBron won finals MVP unanimously. I thought it was interesting that that happened because I looked at that series and I said, without Anthony Davis's defense, like none of what the Lakers did is possible. And so to me, I think I even tweeted that I thought Anthony Davis was the best player in the series, but nobody saw it that way. And I every time when I watched Anthony Davis in the series, and I'm curious to ask you this question because you watched a little more Russell than I did. I saw Bill Russell. Like that's that's the impact I saw. And I, I watched Anthony Davis's 2012 national title game against Kentucky or against Kansas, and I saw Bill Russell. Mark Jackson yes. even mentioned Bill Russell. Um, and I hadn't really seen that from Davis until this year. It took going to this team. But does that comparison make any sense? And do, did Davis get a little bit shafted in his in this sort of MVP conversation because he what he did well is hard to evaluate? Yeah, I, I think yes, probably to all of the above. Um, certainly in 2012, watching that run and the national championship game, myself and a lot of people I talked to at the time were thinking, could we have a transcendent defender for, it's not that there haven't been all-time great defenders in between Russell, but Russell was innovative. He was transcendent. He was like, there was just him coming along and his defensive impact and his physical athleticism. Um, Russell was about 6'10 and without shoes and he moved that way uh, and could jump, you know, just an Olympic level high jumper basically for the era. Um, Davis, a different athlete, but the, the, the seven and a half foot ish wingspan, the way he moves his feet, um, his hips, like all of those things, I think, created that promise. And there were flashes at times in New Orleans. That was actually uh, Ben. That was actually one of my question marks about him last year in making my top 10 list is like there's I can see the argument for him as the best player or a couple spots down because we don't know yet if. It's not just about your ability when on defense. You have to have the mind to focus and do it at that level. Um, and he was great all year in LA, but really his playoff run, Mike, I'm with you. I thought there were just games and specifically game the finals where he was just painting Picassos all over the court for that. You're like, oh my God, he's dominating almost every possession. Um and that is the kind of thing that, yeah, I mean, we've got a pantheon of all-time great defenders, Hakeem and Ben Wallace and Garnett and Draymond and on and on and on. But uh, I buy that comparison in the sense that just so unique to think about a guy who can, Russell called it a horizontal game, who could cover spots on the court, get to the perimeter, switch. And they just didn't do this that much in the 60s. But here we see it today in the modern game. And you have a guy doing that and then also protecting rim and and all of the kind of things we associate with someone like Draymond in the modern game. So, um, 
yeah, yes to all of the above. And I actually, it's funny you say that, Mike. Most of the people I talked to, uh, game five, early game six, were saying if they had a vote, they would vote for Davis for finals MVP. I did not realize it was unanimous until you just told me. That's kind of surprising. That's disappointing, actually. All right. You ha- we have a convert. Yeah, 11 out of 11 had LeBron James as the MVP. Ben, yeah. who, ben Epstein, who would have been your finals MVP? LeBron, but I don't think it should have been unanimous. And I also think that the the way that Davis dominated – two things. I do think that we're forgetting one – the great analogy we can put here is like Scottie Pippen essentially was this all world defender who allowed for Jordan to focus on some other parts of the game. Jordan, obviously being a great defender in his own right. Pippen, not a little guy either kind of similar to Anthony Davis. Actually, if you think about uh, again, Davis guarded Jimmy Butler, what in game two, was it where they moved him on to him? Was it game four, two or three? four, game four, okay. four was four, the okay. big game. And if I could interject something for history, yeah. um, yeah. I thought game five, Butler was able to have success because of Davis's foot problems where we had the heel and then he rolled his ankle late in the game. I don't even think the broadcast showed that until like the post game. Um, And I just watching that game, having just done the game for film study and video, the whole game I'm texting people like Anthony Davis does not is not moving right. Uh, like the Lakers, I'm not surprised to see Butler having success and the Lakers struggling because the whole scheme is built on Davis's ability to shut down this primary action and he couldn't move right. Uh, and then, so I was asked, I did a Q&A for my Patreon subscribers in between game five and six. They said, what do you think of game six? I said, if Anthony Davis is healthy and his feet are moving again, I think Miami's going to be back in the same boat they were in in game four. So I want that for posterity on the record. Uh, that there was not full health in Game Five. Continue, Ben. Well, wait before you continue, real quick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. By the way, they they then switched Anthony Davis off of Jimmy Butler and put him on Bam in Game Six, and he was just as dominant. So, I mean, to me, that sort of says it all. But anyway, Ben, that's right. You were, you were no, 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 that, that's, that's right. That's right. And I think, and we touched on this in the preview for uh, for the series, but that at, at Davis's finest, the, the greatness of him. You saw that. I and mean, we talked about the national championship game he, where he had like nine points but or something to that effect, but ultimately was by far the most dominant force in that game. A good Kansas team, by the way, with some other NBA players on it. Um, but that, like the effect that you can have by being such a multifaceted defensive player, we talked about how, uh, Ben, you mentioned how LeBron finally found his piece that could roll, not just pop. I don't know if anyone catches a lob more athletically in this NBA, I mean, he had like seven or eight in the series alone where you'd be lucky to get your hand on the ball, let alone finish it. The idea to have the object permanence of being able to know where the rim is, where the ball is, where your defenders are and where LeBron's eyes are going all at the same time from sometimes the entire court. Um, And Rondo throws a hell of a pass too. So he has two of the better lob passers, you know, in the league and just being able to kind of show, and that is a defense, in my opinion, that's a defensive athletic trait that pretends well to the offensive side of the ball. Um, and so I think you kind of see him exude both of those things uh, d- doing so. And I think another way too, is getting this whole idea of like, you have to win the title to get the, the credit you deserve. Well, I'm glad Anthony Davis is going to get the credit he deserves now. Um, because I think part of this is that, that again, this is that Jordan winning mentality, that way that lens that we, that we look at the game. Um, it's unfortunate, but ultimately, I, there's very little you can push back on for Anthony Davis's full skill set now. 
Um, and ultimately that title kind of mints it in a lot of ways, especially what he did, right? He guarded Jimmy Butler, he guarded Bam Adebayo. He was essentially the entire defensive force when Dwight kind of got played out of the series a little bit. He was the paint. Um, and then ultimately too, you got to see his shot making ability. He hit a fadeaway three pointer to win a game in this playoff run. Uh, you know, it's like how many guys can do all of those things in a couple in about a month span in NBA history. Um, very, very few. So super unique skill set, which is a lot of what we talked about with Bill Russell. It is a lot of the smaller elements of, of maybe a Scottie Pippen or a Draymond or all those guys who we have classified as generationally defensive, uh, you know, talents. Um, but has a way better offensive game than, than, than most of those guys. I mean, Anthony Davis offensive game in its own right, that's a, a film breakdown for Prada or mm. a Patreon Q and a for you there, Ben. Um, so the idea that he has both sides of that, that NBA game, that's why he's probably number two on your list. Um, only behind LeBron. I, I just want to point out that Ben is in like his third or fourth room in this podcast. <laughs> Can I tell you why? Can I tell you why guys? There is the construction at the, around my, uh, place I'm staying here in California and in Glendale is quite literally moving around my house. And so I'm just going to the room that's furthest from the construction so that I make this a, a ideal listening opportunity for our listeners. But thank you for noticing that. I'm, I'm on the floor actually right now. <laughs> wow. Well, th- this seems like a good time today to wrap this up. Um, <laughs> but I will say really quick to come full circle to the Bill Russell before the Jordan Goat debate, it was Russell versus Chamberlain. And what if they switch places? I mean, Russell... How valuable is it that Russell won all the time, but he also had great teammates that masked his weaknesses. Anthony Davis, we only appreciate all the great things he can do when he gets to play with LeBron. How does that affect how we rank Anthony Davis? How does that affect how we rank LeBron? This is why rankings are very difficult and either must be done with incredible precision and specificity or just don't do them all together. Great great care. I think um, it was Seth Partnow who... The first time we did a pod, started talking about my propensity for rankings and thought for a very long time and said, you you are responsible with your rankings. And I was like, I like that word. I was like, yeah, that's a good way to describe uh, the task. Responsible. I like it. I agree. You're, I agree. And you if, you're gonna, if you're going to put a number there, have some thought behind it. More than some thought. <laughs> uh, it, it is called thinking basketball for a reason, is it not? Um, but anyway, this was really this was really fun. Um, I'm sure we're going to have these theoretical discussions all through the off season. That's Ben Taylor. Ben, they can find you. Uh, where can they find you exactly? Uh, on Twitter at elgee35. Um, best way to support me or access additional content beyond my YouTube thinking basketball or the podcast thinking basketball is patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We do like Q and A's and um, I have extra videos for Patreons. One of them actually on the Lakers and Anthony Davis uh, defending Harden in the Houston series, interestingly enough. So um, yeah. And this, this off season, I will be releasing a huge uh, historical series Starting back, the first video is actually about Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain. So that's something to look forward to. Yeah, I am looking forward to that. And and you can always find Ben Epstein on Twitter at EpiBen. Um, and you can find me at Mike Prada NBA. 
and on the newsletter, uh, which I probably need to get on and figure some what I'm writing about next, uh, and the book eventually, which I have to start. <laughs> which, uh, yeah, that's so daunting. I know you, you talked to Seth about his book, also with Triumph, um, and I have an even longer timeline, even grander idea that I am having so much trouble wrapping my head around. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see how that goes. But, um, yeah, uh, this was terrific. Uh, this has been the Limited Upside Podcast. So we'll be back next week to, uh, I don't know, Ben, what are we going to do next week? Got to get some kind of timelines in place. Once we know when, the, maybe some draft stuff. Eventually we'll get Ricky uh, O'Donnell on, I'm sure. Eventually we'll have to talk about college basketball players that I know Mike and I have not heard of because there was no uh, Mars Madness this year and the draft feels like this theoretical thing in the future. But yeah, we'll, we'll get ourselves into the offseason once we have a better idea of, of what the, what the offseason is going to be. Yeah, God, what a... Again, I don't know what day it is. I don't know what time it is. Anyway, this has been the Limited Upside Podcast. <laughs>